Hello, my name is Mike Walk, and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a broadcast series brought to you by Clarivate. In this episode, we're going to be highlighting the recent publication of our Drugs to Watch in 2021 report. And uh, I'm delighted to be joined by one of the lead authors, John Tour, who is a competitive analyst uh, here at uh, Clarivate. John, first, can I ask you actually yeah, how the candidates selected by Clarivate colleagues uh, were actually picked as drugs to watch? Sure. First, thanks for having me, Mike. It's great to be here. So Drugs to Watch identifies drugs entering the market or launching key indications with the potential to become blockbusters with, within five years. As our listeners will know, the blockbuster status is a milestone that means that the drug achieves over $1 billion in annual sales. So analysts at Clarivate leverage data from various solutions, including Clarivate drugs, this is landscape and forecast reports, as well as Cortell sales data sourced from Refinitiv IBS. So each candidate is researched and evaluated in its individual context, analyzing its strengths and weaknesses, focusing on clinical data, regulatory status, patents, deals, and so on. The disease landscapes for each candidate are also examined from all angles, including competition from oral therapies, treatment algorithms, disease epidemiology, and pricing strategies. So as a result, in 2021, Drugs to Watch highlights four drugs. These include Biogen and Azacetecumumab, which is seeking to prove for Alzheimer's disease, UCB Pharma's Bimikizumab for plexoriasis, Takeda's Relubotics, which is already approved for uterine fibroids in Japan, prostate cancer in the US, and development for endometriosis in Spain. And finally, Baya and Mark Berisova, which is marketed in the US as Vertubo in heart-failure patients with a reduced ejection fraction. Probably the most controversial pick by the team is you know, aducanumab, which is you know, that beta amyloid targeting uh, monoclonal antibody that uh, has been developed by Biogen and ESI, um, which, you know, if approved, would be the, you know, the first disease-modifying therapy for, for Alzheimer's patients. I spoke to John Searles, who is the Senior Director of CNS Ophthalmology Therapy at Team uh, Clarivate, who shared his thoughts on the evidence provided from the Phase 1B trial Prime and the two Phase 3 trials, Engage and Emerge, that actually might support the approval of aducanumab. It is the detailed results of these three trials that comprise the principal evidence base for the regulatory submission packages that have been submitted uh, in multiple countries uh, or, uh, in the world in the past nine months. Um, stepping back for a second, you know, the approval of aducanumab would be, obviously, as you mentioned in your intro, sort of a watershed moment in AD and a major clinical and commercial and regulatory milestone. Um, the drugs off efficacy is not overwhelming. And there's clear evidence or clear room, I should say, for improvement uh, from more effective DMTs down the line, either as monotherapies or in synergistic multimodal combinations to maximize outcomes. But uh, experts do consider the uh, benefits of the drug uh, as demonstrated to be clinically meaningful. And the approval of the drug would, by definition, be a groundbreaking start in an area that has seen 100% pipeline attrition for decades. Well, John noted that clinicians believe that there is evidence that aducanumab could be meaningful for patients. 
I, I was wondering, John, what do you think uh, you know, might be the, the biggest barriers to this candidate actually being a successful drug? If the spectrum of the doctor running its efficacy at the common markets approved, it will indeed be a game changer, radically transforming the Alzheimer's market by becoming the first disease-modifying therapy in a large population where only symptomatic therapies are available. There are, however, some disease-modifying therapies in clinical development that could compete with Alicomumab in the future. These include some, some beta-amyloid uh, agents, which is the same target as Alicomumab, which are in phase two and three clinical development. And this include another molecule also being developed by Isaiah Biogen, which is called uh, Lecanemab, which would be uh, injected bi-weekly by an intra, in, intravenous injection. Then there is one compound being developed by Roach called Gantenerumab, which is expected to be dosed monthly by a subcutaneous in injection, which would be a pretty good advantage compared to the intravenous injection of Adicamumab. And another beta amyloid um, drug in development is one being developed by Eli Lilly called the Donanemab. In addition to drugs targeting beta-amyloid, there are also drugs that are targeting other mechanisms of action, such as the case of tau. Uh, there's, there's been some recent disappointments, like, uh, like a, a drug being developed by Roach called Sem Semiramab, failing a phase two trial, but there are also some, some therapies that are, that are being developed in, in early clinical trials that also show some promise. So, there's that, there's some promise for therapies that are already in the pipeline that could compete as a disease modifying patients against selectomorphic. Most of the drugs that have you know, historically featured as a drug to watch tend to be you know, first in class candidates targeting previously untreatable conditions. However, one of the, the drugs to watch in 2021 picks is, you know, bemekizumab, um, which is a, a humanized monoclonal antibody targeting both IL-17A and IL-17F that's been developed by UCB as a treatment for psoriasis. Given that the treatment options for psoriasis already represent a crowded market, I asked Mohit Nasser, who is a manager of the Immune Inflammatory Disorder Biopharma Insights team at Clarivate, to explain why bemekizumab actually qualifies as a drug to watch. There's always a need for better treatments, especially for chronic diseases, and psoriasis is no different. So based on the data so far, bemekizumab has successfully proven itself better than many efficacious drugs already on the market. In different clinical studies, bemekizumab has proven such, uh, that it is superior over ustekinumab, uh, which is a IL-1223 inhibitor, then adalimumab, which is a TNF-alpha inhibitor, and then sequekinumab, which is another IL-17 inhibitor. Scientifically, what sets bimakizumab apart from rest of the IL-17 inhibitors is its effectiveness in blocking IL-17A and IL-17F, while rest of the IL-17 inhibitors work only on IL-17A cytokine. So, John, if if if... Uh, bimekizumab um, looks like it might be more efficacious and has a better safety profile than other treatments. What barriers will still be needed to be overcome to, you know, for it to emerge as, you know, as a genuine blockbuster medicine? 
So it's true, but despite having a superior efficacy to the standard of care, including the DNA-alpha inhibitor Chimera and the two three inhibitors there are, bimekizumab is still a late entrant to a very crowded and competitive market of psoriasis, which almost 11 biologic compounds are currently being marketed for the indication. Also, bimekizumab is initially expected to be used as a third or fourth line of treatment. So it will have to achieve the preferred inhibitor status to advance in earlier lines. And also, bimekizumab uh, will particularly face stiff competition from the best-in-class IL-23 inhibitor Skyrisi, which has also shown an impressive efficacy in all related conditions for which bimekizumab is, is, is in clinical development, so, such as psoriatic arthritis. So that would be one of the, one of the most fiercest competitors. Launching in an already crowded market is also going to be a challenge for our third pick uh, as a drug to watch. Uh, you know, Verisiguat uh, is a novel uh, oral soluble guanolic cyclase stimulator uh, that's been developed by uh, Bayer and Merck and was approved in early 2021 by the FDA as a treatment of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Reflecting on Verisiguat's entry into a a crowded and competitive market uh, that is also populated by generic medicines. Here is Dominika Rudnika Newland, who is a senior business insights analyst in the cardiovascular metabolic renal hematological disorders team at Clarivate. So it is true that heart failure um, market has been highly genericized and many of the main standard of care treatments have been available for years and even decades. Um, but it is important to mention that even though a number of effective treatments exist, uh, patients with chronic heart failure, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, continue to experience high rates of mortality and morbidity. Uh, so there is definitely a space for improve, room for improvement. Um, and nearly 30% of patients uh, with HEF-REF, so heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, require rehospitalization within three months. And especially patients with worsening heart failure are at the highest risk of rehospitalization and mortality. And uh, up-to-date treatments um, targeting specifically these subpopulations have been uh, lacking. So Verisiguat is a welcome addition to, to the treatment armamentarium of um, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Uh, as it demonstrated, it can further improve patient outcomes uh, when used in combination or on top of a standard of care treatment in this high-risk population. Um, and it's important to remember that heart failure is one of the most prevalent uh, cardiovascular diseases and uh, is the most common reason for hospitalization of patients over 65 years of age. So again, Verisiguat, with its ability to reduce heart failure hospitalizations, is an attractive treatment option. So John, Dominica noted that Verisiguat uh, will be a welcome addition to the treatment on terrain of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction how will it be differentiated from other treatment options which patients and which patients are most likely um, to, to, to benefit? Good question. So, yeah, the heart failure market is indeed a crowded one and it's highly gener generalized. However, what is the first drug specifically approved in a specific subpopulation of heart failure patients, those who have reduced ejection fraction. 
which are a highly underserved population that continues to experience high rates of mortality and morbidity and often requires free hospitalization despite uh, current treatments. So there's still a, a high unmet need in these patients. So the current uh, standard of care is interesting from Novartis, but because very soon what, uh, has a different mechanism of action being a one light cycle as a stimulator, this is also an advantage, meaning that Verisuat can be used in combination with the standard of care. All in all, Verisuat is a highly welcome addition to the high-value armamentarium, as you said, because uh, it's able to find a niche in this high-risk population of high-value patients, and it's a very welcome uh, addition to, the, to available drugs. Often drugs that achieve blockbuster sales do so because they're effective and used in different indications. Uh, and it's for this reason that uh, Relagolix, a gonadotropin-releasing uh, hormone antagonist, is on this year's Drug to Watch uh, 2021 list. It has also been, it's already been approved in Japan to treat uterine fibroids and in the United States as a prostate cancer treatment and is also in development as a potential treatment of endometriosis-related um, pain. To discuss the drug's potential in three indications, I was joined by uh, Rainer Priyadashini, uh, a senior business analyst in the Infectious and Rare Diseases team at Clarivate, and Carolina Dopasa, a business insights analyst on the oncology team at Clarivate. While it is the potential in all three indications, according to Priya, the biggest driver for Relicolix to achieve block-based status is actually in the uterine fibroids. The target population for uterine fibroids is huge. It's estimated that almost 25% of women of reproductive age have fibroids at some point in their life. It's one of the leading causes why women have to get hysterectomy in the United States. Uh, the current therapy which are out there, they all suffer from one or the other causes and everything has almost a suboptimal efficacy which leads to patients having to resort to only the invasive surgical options or maybe a minimally invasive option such as endometrial ablation, but nothing that is out there which really provides a disease-modifying therapy for the patients. While there is a clear medical need, other drug classes such as GnRH agonists or progesterone receptor modulators are already available. So how might, you know, Relagolix, you know, compete uh, with these? Great question, Mike. Uh, it's true that hormonal contraceptives are the first length of treatment and are inexpensive, but the problem is that they are largely ineffective. The same with generic agonists. They are widely used and actually are widely generic now, but and the problem with this is that they are associated with menopause-like symptoms such as flashes, headache, and nausea. So Renewalix also has the advantage versus these generic agonists such as Lupron. Uh, for being oral an oral therapy, which is very convenient, and also by being dosed more, more frequently than Lupron, it improves the ability to manage uh, potential menopause-like symptoms by modifying the doses more easily. It is a similar situation in, in prostate cancer, an indication for which uh, Relagolix was approved in the United States um, at the end of uh, 2020. Yeah, because there are there are also alternative treatment options, including you know, other GnRH uh, antagonists and agonists. 
Yeah, however, uh, Carolina was clear to uh, explain you know, why uh, Relugolics might be able to compete. I think the main difference uh, between Relugolics and the alternative treatments that we have available in prostate cancer, as you mentioned, the GnRH agonist and the antagonist that is approved, is that it is, Relugolics is an oral medication. Uh, so all these, well, all the other treatments are administered by injection. And I think the great advantage of relugolics can be seen very clearly when we compare it with Degarelix, which is the other GNRH antagonist in the market, because this agent, Degarelix, is given as a subcutaneous injection every four weeks. And the problem that it has is that it produces a lot of local side effects in the site of in- injection such as pain, inflammation, and sometimes fever. So I think it's a great opportunity uh, and a great benefit also for the patient uh, to have an oral option of treatment um, and not have to go through every month uh, with these local side effects that the injection produces. And then I think uh, another great advantage of relugolics uh, is related to its safety profile. So Relugolix was evaluated in, uh, in the phase three HERO trial against Leoprolide, which is a very popular GNRH uh, agonist in the prostate cancer market. And actually Relugolix was associated with a lower risk of major adverse cardiovascular events compared to Leoprolide. John. So physicians' anxiety about increased risk of cardiovascular events associated with GRH agonists is what will potentially drive up use of relugolics in prostate cancer? Yes, this is indeed one of the major advantages of relugolics over GNRH agonists, uh, as, as it has much lower risk of cardiovascular events. Uh, and this will increase its use, particularly in patients that are already at higher risk of cardiovascular events. Also, some other fact, another advantage of, um, versus GnRH agonists, particularly Lupron, is that they act by initially raising testosterone levels and causing a clinical flare. Relugolics, on the other hand, which is associated with a rapid decrease in testosterone, which is likely to enable rapid testosterone recovery when the treatment ends, which is a very strong opportunity for the drug. The third indication that uh, relugolics has been lined up for is uh, in endometriosis-related pain, uh, a condition for which the first-line therapies are hormonal contraceptives or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Yet while these options are inexpensive, yet Rhino actually noted that you know, relugolics will still be able to compete uh, in some patients. Every woman who has had fibroids has used hormonal contraceptive at some point. But we also do have to understand that these agents are marked by the suboptimal efficacies. For example, hormone hormone contraceptives, they do help in uh, managing the heavy menstrual bleeding that the women go through, but they have really no effect in reducing the fibroid size, which is the underlying cause. So it's basically like you you get fibroids, you, the doctor puts you on hormonal contraceptives, you take it for a while, you manage your symptoms, you stop taking it, it comes back, 
you have to take it again, provided your fibroid size has not increased. And if they have increased, then you resort to the further classes of treatment. Uh, so they don't really treat the underlying condition. Second, about anti-inflammatory, they don't even help with the menstrual bleeding part of the disease. What they're good for is managing the pain that comes with it, the pelvic pain and the pain caused by excessive bleeding. So they do help, but even their efficacy is limited because they are also unable to act on the size of the fibroids. Uh, I believe that is the main reason that almost 60% of the women, they fail the first-line therapies, which leads them to use stronger drugs such as GRNH agonists and the GRNH antagonists. So when we compare these two broad subclasses of GNRH antagonists with agonists such as Lupron, the GNRH antagonists where Religolix belong, they definitely have the advantage of having a better, better safety profile. Lupron is almost not as, Lupron is contraindicated for people who have had cardiovascular problems, but the GNRH antagonists like Allegolix and Religolix have a better cardiovascular safety profile. Uh, also, when you administer the GNRH agonists, their action is delayed. There's a, a rap receptor desensitization because of an initial flare-up effect. So that leads to a delay in the decreased uh, amounts of estrogen in the body. So that takes around three to four weeks to take place. But religolics and allegolics, which are GNRH antagonists, they have a very rapid uh, onset of action, which really makes them one step superior to the GNRH agonists. The second thing is the ease of administration. These are oral pills, which the patient can take, and they don't need to, you know, take a shot every time. John, what, what, what do you think are the major challenges, you know, relegolics actually might face in, you know, this, this indication of endometriosis-related pain? Without a doubt, combining oral contraceptives and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories which are used as first-line therapies and are considerably less expensive than that generate agonists or antagonists, as a matter of fact. And, this, and, this, and that is despite their suboptimal efficacy and the fact that they only manage symptoms but not the cause of the disease. Also, the low treatment rates for both endometriosis and uterine fibroids is, an, is another contributing threat, threat for the success of the drug. Uh, because most of these patients go undiagnosed in most cases. So this is, this is a great threat for regular success. Uh, the drug will also face a competition from GNRH agonists, particularly from which is generic in the US, and also direct competition from other GNRH antagonists, such as Elisa, which has the first market advantage uh, for, for the class in both, in both endometriosis and uterine fibroids. So those are the, the four non-COVID-19 drug compounds that are, are featured in, in this year's Drugs to Watch, um, a report that is available for download. Also, if you want to hear the full discussions with our analysts about the selected Drugs to Watch molecules, you can also download the individual Conversations in Healthcare episodes. So I'd, I'd like to thank John for, for his contribution today and, and also uh, to you for, for, for tuning into this episode. If you want to be notified about future episodes of Conversations Healthcare, be sure to follow our LinkedIn page where we'll be announcing new releases. Thank you. Thank you.